Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle to people that make it occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do glorious things at a place called Freethink. People tell stories about my skill, talent, and ability on a regular basis. And by stories, I mean like it's just it's I'm legend is what I'm trying to tell you. And I should be respected and revered. And I'm joined by other people who should also be respected and revered, perhaps not to the same degree. But a little bit. Matt Welch, editor at large of Reason Magazine. Um, Moynihan is not with us. He had another engagement and he, he was deeply wounded by the fact that he couldn't join us because today's guest is one of our favorite people. In fact, this conversation is taking place across three different time zones, which has probably happened before, but I don't know that it's been quite this particular constellation before. I mean, one of us is, is literally recording tomorrow. And G'day from the future. <laughs> and Wake up, you cunts. And it's Josh Zeps. <laughs> Host of Wake Up, you Hello. cunts. Hello. Hello again. Yeah, no, I, this is really, I'm going to have to be Moynihan today, am I? Yeah. I can't just talk. I'm going to How's this for my Moynihan impression? The fucking Australian joining us from fucking Crocodile Dundee from down under. He's going to be with his fucking kangaroos and koalas to the show. I don't know. Fuck him. That's my Moynihan. Pretty good. The R's are the trouble. That's, that's where you slip That's pretty strong, up. actually. Yeah. That yeah. was pretty so strong. So I didn't know Moynihan wasn't going to be here. I'm going to have to ch- channel him in spirit. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Uh, we'll, Michael, if you're listening, which we'll he be probably fine. won't. Yeah. We miss no, you. No, no, he, no. He, he will listen. He listens to all of the Fifth Column episodes he's not here for. That's the only way he can critique us. And actually, he prefers the ones that he is here for, which he just listens back to his own voice constantly while gently <laughs> masturbating. That's uh, yes, un- an interesting fact. I, yeah. Uh, all true except for the gentle part. <laughs> yeah. He's furious. His masturbation is furious, ladies well, and gentlemen. Absent the asphyxiation, he can't finish. That is the whole thing. It's very important. It's critical. He's, this is what he's told. He's actually used the word vital, I think. So, yeah. You know. Uh, we're off to a good start. Yes. Uh, lovely to see you again, uh, Camille. And it is, I wish it I could be so there in good person. to see you. Yeah. I'm counting down the days to when we can get a beer again and actually do this in person when I'm released from my prison aisle. Yeah, oh you're goodness. actually imprisoned <laughs> on your convict continent. That's how you guys started. That's how it will finish, apparently. It's all looping back. Yeah, according to Tucker Carlson, this is the end of Australia, totalitarianism. So uh, well, this, this is, is the- uh, we started as convicts and we are ending <laughs> well, as wanted, convicts, I gently to- sinking into the South Pacific, the water <laughs> lapping at our knees. I wanted to warm up a little bit before we get into it because it's been so long since we've talked to you. And I am just mm. genuinely interested in knowing how the hell you're doing. I think the last time we talked was like the summer of last year. The three of us, Moynihan, Welch, and myself, were in – Williamsburg. This is yeah. pre-vaccine and we were having a recording pretty early on. And at that time, there were so many things about the world that were different. I still lived in Brooklyn, although I was commuting back and forth and making my plans to escape to the West Coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. Cuomo, people were still in love with this man and were actively talking about him becoming president of the United yep. States of America because of mm. his his potent response to the COVID pandemic. Saved so many lives and totally wasn't involved in any kinds of horrible, nefarious um, activities. And we're, of course, not talking about letting old people die in nursing homes and lying about it. We're talking about, you know, being a little handsy. <laughs> That's the real problem. Um, and, and a number of other things were different, uh, Josh, including your, I think, at that time, kind of robust support 
for lockdowns, which I think you probably pulled back on a little bit. Although part of the reason we're talking today is because you find yourself in a situation that I am, I think, very familiar with in a different circumstance, like with this critical race theory insanity I find myself feeling nothing but contempt for people who insist on pushing this propaganda on people and simultaneously completely incensed by the suggestion that what we ought to be doing is banning bad ideas and putting zip ties on teachers' hands and perp walking them out of schools if they insist on mentioning TNC. Are you saying there might be a complicated uh, a complicated Needs solution to certain problems and they might not fall neatly into a, a certain ideological yes. camp? This is craziness, I'm Foster. I'm sorry. You, you kind of had me at, at zip ties on teachers. <laughs> I was getting I was getting my furious Moynihan activity Would on. the teacher be a primary school teacher and would she be 22? <laughs> Maybe. That's all I'm asking. Maybe. That's all I'm There's asking. certainly a special yeah. sort of punishment in store for her. Why does it have to be a she, a homophobe? This is very true. Uh, for a man who's married to a man, I'm extremely homophobic and, and anti-Semitic. I want to make sure she's not a Jew as well. Is she a nice Aryan 22-year-old primary school teacher? And let's crack out the zip ties. Well, uh, look, there's lots got a lot of water to go under the bridge, Mr. Foster. I'll tell you that for nothing. I'm, uh, I'm doing okay. I'm not doing great. Hmm. I don't think anyone in Sydney or Melbourne at the moment is doing great. It's not fun being in a lockdown and, uh, you know, teetering on the edge of an epidemic that has been successfully postponed for quite some time. I guess I'm here to, to, to I, I, would you say I was crowing last time about the, about Australia's success? Some people on Twitter seem to think that I'm here to pay penance, that I'm here to <laughs> eat some humble pie, that I am, that I have to climb down from my, uh, my pride in my country that I may have I see it more last. as a, of a clucking than a crowing. <laughs> there's, an, there's an important difference. I, I think it, I think it was actually a lot more sensible and reasonable than that. In fact, I, I could play back some of the audio from that appearance because the, the truth is that you weren't you weren't sort of thumping your chest in a, in a ridiculous hysterical like you people are so awful kind of way you you were very qualified about it in fact i remember you saying explicitly uh something along the lines of if in fact it turns out that this thing is endemic then the strategy with respect to these hard fast lockdowns would have probably been somewhat misguided because that is a completely different circumstance and um, you know, we're talking about this in the context we've mentioned Tucker Carlson and his proclamation uh, about what Australia is. And I think we should probably actually play that audio in a little bit. But it's also the case that other people like Connor Friedersdorf has written about this at The Atlantic. And Connor acknowledges the fact that Australia and New Zealand are two two countries in particular that did a, a, a thing that no one else has really done in terms of literally containing COVID early on. And having a period of time where they kind of flattened it to zero. Now that did require kind of a fortress approach um, for Australia and New Zealand where like, you can't come in. And in some instances, you can't go out kind of. Um, but that created a, a, a particular circumstance for you all to have to cope with now with the Delta variant. So maybe you can give us well, a sense yeah, of what's going on and, and yeah. 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 I mean, I should probably start by saying that I, I, I don't think I would change anything that I have previously said about Australia's response to the pandemic. I, I think it was broadly correct in initially to take it very seriously and to lock down quickly in order to try to suppress it as much as possible. And the reality has been also, I should emphasize up front, 
Australia is a federation of states like the United States is. So all health and policing and lockdown rules and everything take place on a state level. So quite frequently, I'll see people send me on Twitter some instance of police brutality against some protester who was protesting a lockdown. And it's in a completely different state. And mm-hmm. like, I'll be totally free. And they'll be like, this is what's going on all across Australia. Not that that makes it okay. Yeah. But just to clarify that each each state is responding in its own with its own level of hysteria. How and many in- miserable states do you have in your We have six states and two territories. The territories, unlike, they're not sort of Guam or the US Virgin Islands. They're basically states, except their laws are allowed to be overridden by the federal government. Weird quirk. So there are functionally eight eight states. And uh, the, the state of New South Wales, the most populous state where Sydney is, has taken a the most mild approach towards lockdowns historically. We locked down hard for nine weeks initially in March of 2020, and that bought us 13 months of functional freedom. And I think it's worth, like Connor Friedersdorf's piece in The Atlantic, which riled up a lot of people in Australia, and I wrote a 25-tweet Twitter thread in response to it, uh, mm-hmm. which he kindly retweeted, which people should go and check out. On my, it's pinned to the top of my my Twitter profile. Uh, and he and I, he was he just came on my podcast to to flesh out a few of our agreements and disagreements. Uh, people can find my podcast at Uncomfortable Conversations if they want to hear that. But one point that I was making is it's worth separating two kinds of inhibition on personal liberty that's taking place in Australia. One is the border. The fact that unless you apply to the government for an exemption, you can't leave the country. Now, the government will grant that exemption very readily if you promise to stay away for 90 days or more. 90. Because the, the purpose of the, yeah, or if you have a, a, a compassionate reason, like you've got a family who's family member dying abroad or a funeral or something like that, or if you've got a business reason, you have to go and appear on a panel at the Cannes Film Festival or something. So people are coming and going. They're getting exemptions. But it's basically the outbound travel ban is a way of reducing the, uh, the demand for the quarantine spaces of Australians who are returning from abroad, which is the other piece of this border puzzle, which is that in March of 2020, Australia said, all right, no foreigners are coming in during the pandemic and Australians who are coming back will literally be met at the airport and uh, shuffled into repurposed hotels, airport hotels, like literally Marriott's and Novotel's and things, and where they'll have to stay for two weeks uh, and then they can come out and go home. And that is how we will minimise the spread from countries like China at the time, you know, uh, and, uh, and elsewhere. That regime is still in place and is becoming increasingly absurd because you've got fully vaccinated COVID-negative Australians who, when they arrive in the country, have to mm-hmm. be quarantined. Right. But every single day, there's more than a thousand new cases cropping up in Sydney and those people just get to self-isolate at home and, you know, they could probably breach that rule if they wanted to. So so things are kind of falling apart and we're sprinting towards the finish line and we're fully cognizant of how incongruous the whole thing somewhat seems. But it's worth separating that those border prohibitions from what I think is a more serious concern about human human rights, which is and which was sort of Connor's point in the Atlantic, which would be how long can a country keep on imposing draconian rules on the movement of its citizens, like 
in Victoria, there are curfews, and in some local government areas in Sydney, there are curfews. You're not allowed to be out after 9pm or before, like, 5am or something. There is no scientific or epidemiological reason why that's the, the case. That actually was something that the police minister requested to just to be able to give more I don't know, more more power to people who wanted to be able to to, to disperse crowds of young people who were hanging out drinking at 2 a.m. in a park, right? right. That is, so those kinds of things, and like the rules under which I'm currently living in Sydney, just to give you an example, I'm allowed out. You know, some people, I think, think the lockdown means that you're like trapped inside. What it basically means is that you're working from home unless you're in an essential industry. Uh, and in Sydney, that means that I also can't go more than three miles from my house without a good reason. And there are several categories of reason. What happens when you go 3.2 miles? Who notices? How do they There are snipers on the roofs of all the buildings (laughs) and they take you out for a single shot when you go 3.1 miles. No, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. But but there have been things that have happened. Like we've seen some of these things. You mentioned the kids who uh, got arrested having that party, and I've I've seen the video, and I I cringed watching a young person like on their knees with their hands behind their backs in handcuffs, bleeding apparently from some sort of cut on their leg, while the police officer was engaging with who someone who I presume was like their parents. And this just struck me as, unless there was some physical altercation, this is completely fucking insane. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. But basically, uh, yes, if you're doing something that is wildly against the spirit of of trying to suppress the pandemic explosion that's currently taking place, like mm-hmm. having a big unmasked, unvaxxed party, then I can imagine that if you object to uh, getting fined, which you, so basically you get a thousand dollar fine if you mm-hmm. breach the rules technically but as you suggest as you imply matt there's no enforcement mechanism i mean i've never this we're now into like the 10th week of this lockdown and i've certainly never been approached by a police officer to ask for my id to check that i'm within five kilometers of my house okay that's not happening but they there do, are they did check that in france right like there was a one yeah in, exactly i mean france has had many other this is why i'm a little bit perplexed by the focus on Australia at the moment, because many other places have had lockdowns that were much stricter. I mean, in France, you couldn't leave your house, and and Italy, I think, as well. You couldn't leave your house without papers, mm-hmm. um, that you know, without a good excuse to leave your front door. That sort of thing is not happening. But I mean, I will I will completely agree that uh, it 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 is a sucky way to live, and if it lasted one day longer than it has to, you would worry about Australian democracy. But what has allowed us to not have to live this way in the context of uh, of the past 18 months has been the border closures. So, like, sometimes we, I think, we use interchangeably the the border prohibitions on human freedom as if they're yet more evidence of the indignities that Australians are enduring due to the lockdowns. But in actual fact, in the majority of Australian states at the moment, there are no lockdowns because they've done a better job of securing the borders than the two most populous states, which have been processing all of the quarantine people and had the virus escape from quarantine have. So in Western Australia, in Perth, a city of more than a million people, there's no lockdowns. Everyone's out and about. They're partying. They're in pubs. They're in bars. But if they leave the state, they know that they're going to have to spend two weeks in a hotel on their way back in. That's what has bought them 18 months of living without the virus. So now the question is, well, what the hell happens now? And I think that's the legitimate question that a lot of more reasonable Americans are kind of raising their eyebrows about. Like, why... 
Well, I think there are two two things that I hear get asked. One is, why do you have to be so hysterical over a relatively small number of cases? And why do you have to be so brutal about enforcing the lockdown? The answer to that is, we stuffed up the vaccine uh, procurement, the government did. They, they didn't jump on as much Pfizer as they should have last June and July and August when other countries were, were, were buying it. We have our own capacity to make AstraZeneca and some of the other vaccines, and the government stupidly failed to push Pfizer for as many doses as it could get. It only got its order in in November, and the US and UK and Canada had theirs in by the first week of August. So we're sprinting to the finish line to get vaxxed. Where are you now, roughly? We are at, well, it's a state-by-state thing. New South Wales is at 70% first dose. So the the plan is that once we hit 70% first dose, uh, vaccinated people can uh, go to pubs and restaurants and bars and cafes and, and all that sort of jazz again domestically, and that once we hit 80% second dose, uh, the the borders will open and hotel quarantine will will begin to be dismantled and and so on. So this concern about this being like a permanent state of affairs or like you know maybe it'll become an endless emergency, I share that concern. I mean there are elements here, as I'm sure there are everywhere, who would choose safety over liberty, and who you know especially if you're in uh, one of the smaller states like Western Australia or Tasmania and you're living a normal life, why would you want, well, you know, how brave would a politician have to be to say, yeah, let's introduce a brand new pathogen into the community that will make some people really sick. Like, are they going to wait until they get to 90% vaccination and so they can guarantee that people don't get sick? Or, you know, what if a new variant comes along? What if they, what if vaccination doesn't get that high? How many carrots and sticks are they going to have to impose? There is a real concern that places that have managed to successfully isolate themselves, insulate themselves, I should say, from the virus for almost two years are going to face a kind of Sophie's choice about how to open up and when. And there will be some people who would rather limp along in a in a soft sort of authoritarianism or isolation than tolerate the reality of ongoing endemic deaths. But that is not going to be New South Wales because New South Wales can't eradicate its current outbreak. We have between 1,200 and 1,500 new cases a day. There's no way we can get that genie back in the bottle. So we're just sprinting to the finish line vax-wise. And once we reopen to the world, at some point, the other states are going to go, <laughs> well, it makes no sense that people can fly from Sydney to Los Angeles, but they can't fly from Sydney to Perth. Uh, it's about time. Stick a fork in it. It's done. One of the issues about shifting finishing line we see it here with school policy, right? I mean, kids um, are still not catching it. The Los Angeles Unified School District tests a half a million people a week, uh, every week. The same people vaccinated or not. I mean, it's an incredible data set, and they tested them before the school year started, and something like 0.8% of students um, tested positive They who'd caught it at home or wherever. Um, and they keep testing throughout. I forget the, what the latest numbers are. It's more like 0.4%. So after school got in uh, uh, place, and of course, there's a ton of media alarm stories because you can make that into a large raw number, 3,722 people tested positive. My God, what are we doing to our kids? Uh, but meanwhile, none of the kids are sick and there were no like uh, transmissions. I think there's two schools that got uh, transmissions. But we're seeing that in New York right here. There were like the last school district to open up and people are um, uh, preemptively losing their shit about mm. this. In L.A., the nice space music you got there, uh, Camille. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where that's coming from. 
<laughs> I really, I don't know which one of my devices is making that noise. He's like on, he's on a Star Trek Voyager mission. This, now. What the hell is the going close on? encounters? So this is Ben Dreyfus coming in, going, <laughs> "Holy <laughs> shit!" This is like terrifying. I really have no idea what? where that noise is coming from. I've, is it coming absolute, out of your computer? It it is. It was from somewhere, but I don't know like what tab or anything. It's mm. so fucking See, weird. Like Adderall, you need to control your tabs. This is this is what I'm saying. Oh, you know like, what it is? One of the, it's one of the damn Canadian news websites that I have open. It's just so pretentious and awful. It's actually just forcing its way. What the fuck? It's spontaneous. It's open in the we background. We already have a fucking pirate on the podcast. I'm prepping before right. we talk. I'm, I'm reading. And Australia and Canada are basic. <laughs> Australia and Canada are basically the same country anyway. I don't believe that for a moment. <laughs> Australia is a Australia is Canada's sous-mer. Uh How much Better are you looking at, at Hawaii right now? And I asked that because. Hawaii is an island, um, like Australia. It, 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 or I mean, I guess you know some people used to it's go. A, it's a lot smaller than Australia. I don't know if you, are, I don't know if you're familiar with the size of Australia. Uh, Australia is the same size as the contiguous United States. Yes, but and Hawaii but also, is not. But Hawaii is uh, is in the South Pacific. It's an island. So it's different from North America Pacific, but because yep. of its uh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> different <laughs> different than the rest of us because of its islandness, and also yeah. it has had by far two things: the lowest amount of COVID and deaths per capita, and so on, and the highest amount of vaccination. Uh, I think their old people vaccination is above ninety nine percent. It's the highest by far in the country. And in the last, did you say old people? Isn't that ageist now? Aren't you supposed yes. to say people living with age? No. Okay. <laughs> say old people. Old, old people. Uh, uh, yeah. No. But, we don't compare they, ourselves too much. Yeah. No. But, yeah, I, but I mean, I, I say this. I say this because they have experienced the same basic slope of Delta infections, despite all of this. Uh, uh, over the last uh, couple of months as Texas with a slight drop off in their number of people who die uh, because the vaccination is higher. But like the Delta is ripping through the um, 99% old people uh, vaccination mm. rates there too. And I also wonder um, if there are, are things both in terms of policy, but also results. I know that you don't like to talk about New Zealand as being an actual country or worth uh, anybody paying any attention to, but like <laughs> islands are different, dude. Like different, different uh, uh, concepts, yeah. different policies. You guys yeah. have always got a weird hang up about, uh, you know, the red Chinese or whoever else were coming in the country, a different like uh, approach towards immigration. So what do you yeah. look at or what do you notice when you see other uh, crazy island people? Well, you're right to, to point out Delta. Because Delta is why we're here, basically. Delta changed all of the epidemiological assumptions that had underpinned the success of New South Wales uh, for the prior 13 months. So it's not that there hadn't been outbreaks. There had been outbreaks from hotel quarantine. Uh, but we have a very strong contact tracing system and we all scan QR codes wherever we go relentlessly. Uh, and so the contact tracers who are, you know, immediately after the pandemic hit and Qantas, the airline, fired a bunch of people the government rehired them to become contact tracers to to call people who'd come in contact with people who were infectious and that was able to put the lid on all of the outbreaks with the original wuhan 
variant. And then can I, when Delta can I slow came you up, down? Can I slow you yeah. down just for half a second? Because yeah. we yeah. all scan QR codes wherever we go. Um, that's going to uh, yeah, be that's, a bit that, of a, that a, freaks a record out your scratch. libertarian mind, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, a, a little bit. I don't. I'm scan QR codes wherever I go. So what does that? What does that mean? And what are the like? What are the? What are the effects of that? Or what happens next? So well, each each state has its own QR code system. And I'm already tired of your federalism, by the way. It's getting <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm emphasizing it so much because I keep getting accused by people, by Australians from smaller states for speaking as if New South Wales is the whole uh, country because I have that kind of, you know, it's like people in Sydney or in New South Wales are like New Yorkers who just think that they, they are the, ent- the entirety of the United States. You mean you're, you're, um, you're most of it. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are, basically, to like be fair. By a, by a lot. So, yeah. so you scan the QR code when you go into an establishment and it, and you, you just basically check in and check out. And then that is held on your really? phone. So yeah. like the, the, the supermarket, the, yep. the restaurant, supermarket, the bar. restaurant, everywhere, basically everywhere. You just you scan check it, has in a little QR you code. You check out and it knows yeah. where you are. No, it doesn't know where you are until you become a person who has uh, COVID so or, I mean, so it's, on you. it's, it's held locally, but yes, there is a potential. You're right to, you're right for your spidey sense to go off about this because it's currently an active debate in New South Wales. When they introduced the QR codes at the start of the pandemic, they, uh, made it clear that this was never going to be used for law enforcement. So it's against the law for those QR codes to be used for anything other than contact tracing. But, as you can tell, as you can guess, spoiler alert, not all <laughs> states had the had the presence of mind to do that. So now there have been some cases uh, in WA, in Western Australia, of police solving three instances in which police used uh-huh. to obtain QR code information about people to solve a crime. Of course. Now, that has become something of a political scandal because even if you're a tough on crime, you know, anti-libertarian, mm-hmm. uh, you if you believe in the health utility of being able to contact trace outbreaks, then you don't want to discourage people from checking in and checking out uh, by making them fearful that their information, their data is going to be compromised by law enforcement. So uh, you're right, that that has become somewhat controversial, but it's generally broadly accepted. And we can talk about the cultural differences between America and Australia at, at some point if you want. But yeah, I mean, here, beaten, that, that's- <laughs> yeah, here we, are, we are either like we are either sheeple who haven't who've never learned to be free or we're <laughs> pragmatists who go, you know, you know what, I'd rather be I'd rather be checking in and checking out so that if it if it turns out that my Uber driver was infectious, I'll I'll know and I'll know, know to self-isolate so that I don't kill my parents who might not yet be be vaccinated than uh, uh, adhere to abstract ideas about liberty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows the ideas are always abstract when you're trying to shit on them. <laughs> well, that, it's just the thing, though. It's what makes the the kind of outraged response to Connor's piece so shocking to me. Because when I read it, and it may just be because I know Connor, and I tend to try to be very careful when I'm reading everything, and <laughs> only allow myself to imagine that someone is saying what they're actually saying. And Connor says in rather qualified ways, when does it become a problem that these things are going on too long? When does it become a problem that there are now additional policy restrictions that don't really seem to have an epidemiological foundation? It is one thing to close the border to anyone coming in. It's quite another thing to close it to folks going in and out, even if there is a provision that allows you to apply for permission to leave. 
Like you, you actually only need yeah, one of those agree. things and to I mean, obtain that protection. This is a, you know, and Matt alluded earlier to Australia's relationship to immigration and our incredible. But I, I do also think this is part of the hypocrisy of the American criticism, which is that I mean, you know, there's been a lot of concern mongering from Americans about our quarantine camps, and I've seen aerial photos of. There's this. Um, <laughs> In, ad- in addition to in addition to the hotels that, that the vast vast majority of returning Australians are forced to stay in for two weeks, mm-hmm. there's uh, a repurposed mine um, uh, like not mine mining, shaft. We call them mine shaft. It's fine. <laughs> they're, 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 they're throwing down a mine shaft. <laughs> it's not that high, but it's a very nice uh, mine shaft. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful mine shaft. Uh, yeah. They, yeah, no, the pillows are wonderful. No, yeah. there's a um, there's a there's like a construction. There's a there's a large construction. Uh, bungalow camp out on the outskirts of Darwin that used to be for people who were who were building a, a large project nearby, and then it was repurposed into a military barracks, and now it's been repurposed into a quarantine station for the Australians who weren't able to come home on commercial aircraft and who've been repatriated home on special uh, Department of Foreign Affairs uh, sort of rescue flights. And so that's actually the nicest place to stay. People People try to get a flight into Darwin rather than anywhere else, because rather than being cooped up in a Marriott, you might be, you get your own bungalow and it's got a veranda and you can go outside and you can get some fresh air and you can exercise and so on instead of being stuck in a, in a service department. Um, so it's quite a nice place. And the food is apparently quite nice as well. The New York times, uh, Sydney bureau chief, Damien Cave just came through and has an interesting uh, article about his experience in Howard Springs, which is the, the name of this quarantine station but i've seen <laughs> photos of it from going around on and like tim tim pool and like you know alt-righty sort of journal you know citizen journo bros like that uh <laughs> you know tweeting about it saying that the australia is running concentration camps there's just a lot of misinformation like that it's a concentration camp where we're yeah. sending the infectious or people with infectious ideas maybe or maybe next it'll just be you know the people who the government doesn't like I mean, maybe. <laughs> like, well, maybe I'll I'll bet him that I'll bet that I'll bet as much money as he wants that that doesn't happen. But I suppose yeah. anything could be repurposed into into anything. Well, that's I can't remember where we started. Oh, that's right. So that oh. so this the, the point of sorry, but the point about immigration, uh-huh. we have been running literal concentration camps in Australia as part of our offshore detention of uh, asylum seekers who arrive by boat mm. in other countries, so that they don't have the rights that we would have to give to them as a signatory to the United Nations Refugee Convention. So we intercept them offshore. Mm. We say, you're not technically our problem. We pay a shit ton of money to tiny Pacific Island nations like Nauru and Papua New Guinea to run concentration camps there where they are stationed. Mm. And the official policy has been for decades now, if you arrive in Australia by boat to seek asylum, you will never set foot in Australia. You will never come to Australia, even if you end up being proven as a refugee. And we do enormous, uh, like, refugee swaps. Now, I should say, Australia has one of the highest immigration rates per capita in the entire world. We are mm-hmm. a more migrant-heavy country even than the United States. The proportion of our population who was born abroad is, is something like 40%. Like, most of the country has arrived since the Second World War, and our humanitarian intake is very, very high. But we take people from refugee camps and from the UN refugee, um, like, outfit, and we will exchange them sometimes for these people who are rotting in these concentration camps. Now, 
Donald Trump loved the camp idea. Lots of American conservatives have been big fans of Australia's hardline policy. And in some respects, it's an understandable policy because the the only way that Australia has been able to maintain public support for such high levels of immigration for so long is by reassuring voters that we are deciding exactly who's going to come here and that we have control over the borders. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do think something perverse happens when you don't give a shit about controlling the border. You get effects like Trump and you get effects like Brexit when people feel like they're out of, like the border is out of control. So to some extent, uh, there is a Faustian bargain that may be worth making to Australia's hardline position. But what I find weird is that all of a sudden, so many American journo bro citizen dude concern mongers are worried about, uh, you know, a mining accommodation where we're putting people temporarily during a pandemic who have chosen to go there because they want to come back to Australia and these are the same people who wouldn't give a flying fuck about the actual concentration camps that we're running in New Guinea. Yeah. I mean, look, public public opinion, public perception is relevant. Um, it's certainly true domestically, as you correctly point out, with respect to people's perspective on the immigration policy and the belief that they are, they have some meaningful influence in how that policy is executed. And relatedly, Hysteria is also a very real thing. I think last week we were talking about the um, abortion restrictions that had been passed in Texas and the response to them, the fact that people were equating Texas to Taliban run Afghanistan, essentially <laughs> saying <laughs> that refugees in Afghanistan who are confronted with the possibility yeah. that they may need to go to Texas are like, ah, I'll mm. just stay. Like, it, yes. that's completely yes. insane. I think I, I saw a woman on Twitter who was saying that at this point it would make no difference whether yeah, she was sent to, it's, to, it's to Afghanistan or Texas because it's, it, neither, neither place respects women's rights. Yes, it's completely <laughs> insane. And it's, it's entirely possible to be a sane person who thinks that the Texas law is a bad idea <laughs> that at six odd weeks, like you haven't even reached the point where you can do the test to determine the gender of the kid at the 10 odd week mark um, and whatever other kind of genetic um, issues there may be, which is often the point at which people make decisions about whether or not to continue a pregnancy or even to tell their friends that they are pregnant. This is this seems consequential and like the sort of thing that the policymakers ought to consider, and that wasn't considered. And in much the same way, I think you have this ridiculous, hysterical response to the situation in Australia, which is to say that, well, as Tucker Carlson said, Australia is over. Australia is a totalitarian the water dictatorship. At my knees, it is effectively the CCP is controlling Australia now, which is completely insane. But at the and same, then, let me just also, yeah, sorry, Camille. I was just going to say at the same time, and I, I think you completely agree with this. It is entirely appropriate to look at the places where policies have no epidemiological foundation, or there are actual abuses of the law. There are people who are running afoul of the law for whatever whatever reason. They're instituting, say, border restrictions that are unconstitutional between the different states in in Australia, um, and they're yeah. doing it and with their the own way, justification. They probably That's are unconstitutional, and and nobody even seems to care. They're just like you know. This is what I sort of mean about abstract libertarianism, uh-huh. uh, Matt. It's like you know, and in some ways, without going down the whole rabbit hole of Texas and abortion and stuff, that is a very like what the Supreme Court did last week is the sort of abstraction that I'm talking about in the difference between Australian pragmatism and American idealism. Like, that is the sort of thing that I just don't think a high court in Australia would do 
to look at to look at the law and go, well, technically they're right. There's no one who has any standing. So in this abstract artificial universe of jurisprudence, which is purely you know this platonic world of ideals, uh, there's no possible way that we could uh, that we could make assumptions about what's actually going on in Texas since there's no one with standing and they've managed to find the loophole. Congratulations, uh, we are we are stuck. I mean, in Australia, I just think a, a, a Supreme Court, a High Court justice, would just go, that's got to be bullshit. I mean, technically, yes, in the in the abstract, you might be right. Right, but in practice, this makes absolutely no sense. So I do think there's a different there's a difference there. But Camille, on the on the question of those of rules that don't that, that that don't have epidemiological an epidemiological basis, I think what's happening here is that they're just outliving their welcome from a time when they did work, and we only needed to use them for quite a short time before we enjoyed freedom for so long that we forgot that we we were living in a pandemic but did the curfews this comes ever to, make sense did the curfews ever make sense did no, it ever really the, make sense to ban people new south from wales, leaving new south wales new south wales never jumped on the curfew bandwagon that right. was always a victorian thing that was always a melbourne specific thing and right. almost every time you see a, an instance of police overreach i almost guarantee that it will it'll come from melbourne and mm. and those and they had very 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 i mean there's been a massive PR stoush between the left-wing Victorian government and the conservative New South Wales government, with the conservative New South Wales government being on the side of openness and and economic success and freedom, and the Victorian government being on the side of safety and protect everybody and lock down to whatever extent is necessary. And the premiers, who are like the governors of the states, have a very frosty relationship and one of the reasons why we're in the situation we're in is because the new south wales premier i suppose wasn't fearful enough of the delta variant and based the epidemiological assumptions about how to control it when it did escape from hotel quarantine on her prior experiences with the wuhan virus Mm. and had had she had the same level of caution as the victorian premier then we probably would have been able to put it back in the bottle maybe but if she had, then we also would have been entering lockdown on numerous occasions over the past 18 months, as Melburnians did and Sydneysiders didn't have to, because we were a bit more loosey-goosey and a bit more cavalier. And I would just say on the on the question of, like, I, I've seen quite a lot in the States about, like, I thought Australians were tough. Like, what are they doing <laughs> locking down? We're just 13 cases. Again, I don't know why Rush the, Limbaugh the R's. is. <laughs> is this? Is the defect gone? <laughs> Thank you for the dialogue coaching. <laughs> uh, but the, so Josh the, the, here's the thing about here's the, Josh Zips, <laughs> a fucking Australian fucking kangaroo, a fucking Moynihan. Like lockdowns don't work once the once the thing's gotten out of control. In, like in in countries like France, they had really really strict lockdowns that didn't do terribly much in the long run. The whole point of the lockdown is that the virus spreads exponentially. And if you have a hundred cases today and you have a reproductive rate of 1.3 in the population with the Delta variant, then it doesn't take, it only takes two or three days for the number of cases to double. So a hundred becomes 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200, 6400. And pretty soon you're off to the races and the contact traces can't keep up and your hospital is getting overwhelmed. So, when people are like, why are you being so hysterical over a small number of cases? It's sort of like, well, because there's kind of an on-off switch. Like if we don't want to join the rest of the world and go through what the rest of the world went through 15 months ago, then we have to keep the pause button held until enough of us are vaccinated that we're not going to go through that. Remember, 
we never had our big first wave of COVID deaths or casualties. Right. We right. don't have any background immunity. We don't have people who got mild COVID and then recovered. We don't have a hospital system that, is, that has spent the past 18 months getting used to this, treating this, understanding this, expanding, to, expanding capacity. to cope with this, yeah. expanding capacity. And, you know, Tyler Cowan has a great piece in his blog about that's critical of Australia, which I think is 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 a, a just criticism, which mm. is if Australia really cares about being serious about COVID as much as it says it cares about, right. it would be doing a lot more than just the authoritarian stuff. That's, that's, it would be giving rapid antigen yeah. tests to everybody every other day. It would be massively expanding ICU capacity. That was going to be it would my be, next you know, question, yeah. Cause, I completely and yeah. 100% agree. He he totally nails it, and I, to be honest, hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. But, yes, we are being way too selective in, in the tools that we use. To be fair... They are the the most tried and tested epidemiological tools, which are social distancing, mask wearing, don't travel around too much and spread the virus too much. But I do think it's important for Americans who scratch who are scratching their heads, going, "What the fuck is going on in Australia?" and seeing all these images out of Australia to understand if we open up and let a rip, we don't become Florida today. We become New York in March of 2020. Right. Because we don't have, we, we haven't had the initial cull of people. We haven't had, I mean, there are frankly, per capita, 30,000 Australians who are alive who are dead in the US and the UK because that's the death rate. Now, those people are still vulnerable. They're, they're by definition the people who are most, who are most vulnerable to the virus. If we let things run now before we're vaccinated, then those people die. And it's hard to imagine why you would choose that if all you have to do is wait another two or three months until you get to levels of vaccination that epidemiologists say are going to enable you to open up without unleashing. Isn't there a conceit in the the metaphor of, you know, we can just wait it out two or three months. We can put the genie back in the bottle. There's an on-off switch. There's a pause. All of these things are metaphors that uh, make us think that there is a level of, of human control that if we just willed it in a certain way and pressed a button, and that button is almost always going to be the behavior button. It's almost never going to be, or just not as often as it should be, let's say, and this is very true in America as well, um, a button of like, let's just, how can we vaccine everyone faster and test everyone faster, which seems to be a hell of a lot more interesting and useful. I just wonder. Well, no, if, we are, to, if, be fa- to be fair, we are on that. I mean, New South Wales is currently vaccinating more people per capita than anywhere in the US ever did and anywhere in the UK ever did. We are sprinting. But like, this is, but is, this is very, a new is an all hands lining them up. But the, you're right. The this is new. I mean, this is a total <laughs> fuck up. The prime minister literally said earlier this year, he this said, a race. it's not a race. Right. He said, it's not a race. Vac- and then the moment, not a race. the moment Delta yeah. got out. Yeah. Speaking of the vaccine rollout, but I mean, he was just covering his ass because they fucked it up. Right. What else is he going to say? Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's the thing I that, that keeps rattling around in my head. And I think this is true of so many things in the COVID era we begin to obsess over one particular policy strategy or policy dispute and everything else gets lost in the mix and looking at this from afar without having the the local knowledge that you do that maybe folks became so fixated on the strategy of suppressing and attaining this goal of covid zero and saving as many lives as possible that 
the related work that needed to be done with vaccine development and rollout and even the strategy for acquiring actual vaccines. Because having listened to your podcast and look into this a little bit more in preparation for this, it seems like some pretty severe mistakes were made early on that had pretty, pretty huge consequences. And, 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 building out the hospital capacity because Australia relative to the rest of the first world, so to speak, like actually has really, really low sort of bed availability, not just relative to the United States, but relative to everybody else. I think they're slightly above Japan in that respect, but there's been a lot of time to work on those problems. And I think COVID zero as a strategy has almost boxed policymakers in and made them perhaps blind to the obligation that they had to develop plans for a universe where COVID zero was simply unattainable, not because of the failures of their policy, but because of the reality that the rest of the world did not attain this goal. Yeah, no, completely agree. I mean, you know, I, I am I am disheartened by how unenergetic and unvital like policymaking is, not mm-hmm. just in Australia, but everywhere like everywhere. there is so l- yeah. so little um imagination and ingenuity so little appetite for well, what if we tried this what if we tried this what if we tried this let's have a, a government that is nimble and light and that isn't you know that that goes for the less intrusive option rather than the more intrusive option and you know to be to be fair to the government australia is now building up its mrna vaccine capacity mrna vaccines are very new we didn't know the pandemic was going to hit when it did hit only a small, small, tiny handful of countries had mRNA vaccine production capabilities. Um, Australia will now have uh, its own mRNA plant because currently all of the Pfizer that we're injecting into ourselves is arriving on, you know, on huge freight freighter planes from abroad, as it is in, in most countries. We have our own production of AstraZeneca here. Was that sort of domestic production versus international production question, a, a matter of like economic nationalism early on, like, no, 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 no. We want to make ours here. That's why yeah, we're I going think it to was go partly, with this. Yes. I think it was partly that. And I think it was partly a suspicion towards um, that a suspicion that the mRNA vaccines would turn out to be as successful as they, as they were. And, you know, the government says, look, everybody, you know, we did it as fast as we could, but it, nobody knew exactly how successful they would be to which I say, Throughout the lockdowns in Australia, mm-hmm. the, the other thing that people should understand about the economic impact is, A, the Australian economy has done has outperformed most countries uh, for the obvious reason that if you lock down for nine weeks and then you're completely free for 13 months, like, I mean, I went to Hamilton in February and sat with 2,000 other people with no social distancing at all and went to the theatre. Like, when that sort of thing is happening, like, that had not been happening at that time in the States. So there's a lot more economic activity. But at the time, the Australian government was shoveling vast quantities of money into the economy through all this job keeper, job trainer, job saver, job seeker, and and all of this. For the cost of one week of what it was spending on those programs, it could have secured more than enough Pfizer. But when Pfizer came to the Australian government, and there is unconfirmed but legitimate sounding reporting that I've heard from two different sources that Pfizer actually wanted to make an example of Australia like Israel. And they had a plan to vaccinate all Australians really quickly. And they wanted the Australian health minister and his staff to uh, to sign non-disclosure agreements 
the staff refused. The health minister didn't even attend the meeting. He sent junior staffers who started nickel and diming Pfizer reportedly and haggling over money and saying, well, maybe we're interested, maybe we're not. This was back in June of 2020, so before Pfizer had allocated its doses elsewhere. Wow. And there is a sort of unrolling scandal as to how the health minister might have handled this and might have screwed it up. And there was a kind of a swaggering uh, defensiveness about our own vaccine capacity on AstraZeneca. And my argument was always, why would you not throw the kitchen sink at everything? I think there was probably a fear that they would end up getting criticised if they put to, if they didn't get a good deal. Oh, you know, we paid, you know, Australia paid three times as much for its doses as New Zealand ended up paying. And I don't think at the time when our, our, our response was so successful in reducing COVID deaths, I don't think at the time people really had the empathic imagination to put themselves 12 months in the future and think what it was going to be like for the rest of the world to be getting vaccinated and Australia not to have enough doses. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some disputing of that reporting. Some people saying, look, none of the countries that had very low COVID death rates got large numbers of vaccines because the drug companies prioritised the places that were that had really bad uh, health crises over other places, but there are several very reliable sources in Australian health reporting and some leaked emails between Pfizer and health department officials that strongly indicate that Pfizer wanted to be able to use Australia as a as sort of a country that could, because precisely because it had no endemic uh, coronavirus, they wanted to vaccinate all Australians, watch Australia open up and use it as a great PR message for Pfizer and that the government fucked that up. Mm. Wow. That's, that's devastating. How big a controversy is that domestically? It's pretty big among me and my followers. Uh, it's, <laughs> and it's, <laughs> you know, there'll always be apologists and, and, you know, there'll always be people who say, look, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and, uh, you know, what well, we have to focus on the future. And, but uh, uh, there is a general simmering background fury about the fact that we are at the stage of the of vaccination that we are in comparison to, the United States and the UK. To be fair, we're well ahead of comparable countries. Like we're ahead, of, we're well ahead of New Zealand and even I think places like Japan. But because mm-hmm. um, all countries that haven't had to deal with with uh, a coronavirus epidemic are slower to get vaccinated than places that have. And to, to to some extent, the silver lining about what's going on in Australia at the moment is that we're seeing a hell of a lot faster vaccine take up than we would if we were all hanging out at the beach and partying. I wanted to to ask you, Josh, about Sweden really quickly, because I know we talked about it briefly the last time. And again, last summer, there was a lot of scandal about Sweden in particular, who had a kind of letter rip strategy and who was seeing a number of COVID deaths that was pretty alarming to many people. And there was a, well, let's wait and see how things pan out. And at this point, we have a slightly better idea of where things stand. Although again, this isn't over. Um, but at this point, particular stage, it looks like the excess deaths in Sweden are better than most of Europe. And that in many respects, there have been periods there where their rates of infection has been like staggeringly low. They just had a long stretch where there were like no deaths. I'm not in a position to say, this is the perfect strategy. And look, it obviously worked. I think if anything, I've got far less certainty (laughs) than I thought I kind of did way back then about a lot of things. Um, And there is a strong argument for just less hubris overall from a public Mm. policy, public health standpoint, and a a great deal more 
cautiousness, but not worst case scenario policymaking, but cautiousness that says, look, let's like first do no harm in some respects. We know that this particular population is vulnerable. We should do something to protect them. But, you know, I, I don't want to get too far down that road, but in either case, well, I, I wonder I, I think, what you I think, think about Sweden I think that's right. given the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, the last data that I saw out of Sweden was that they still had higher mortality and a, and a worse economic outcome than their neighbours like Denmark and Norway, who who took a more uh, strict the, approach. So the, we the can differences are, that, are somewhat but. marginal, I think, with the with the economic performance. It's not uniformly worse so far as I can tell. But these things I mean, are hard uh, to tease out. My general attitude towards the whole Sweden debate last year was it felt a little bit to me like people who were the Sweden bros were grasping at whatever example they could to justify their priors. Like Sweden is Sweden. I, I see this now with Israel as well. Like people talking about, oh my goodness, Israel has higher mortality, but they're all vaccinated. Does that mean that the vaccines, you know, wear off quicker or whatever? I don't know. I really don't know. But Israel is a very particular place with a very particular set of circumstances and a very particular ultra-Orthodox community and a very particular occupation of, you know, another country. And Sweden is a very particular, peculiar country with very particular and peculiar mores and behaviours. I think you're right in general that, you know, it depends a lot about when when the finish line is defined as. Like, I mean, if the finish line had been defined as June of this year, then Australia's approach, I think, passed with flying colours. If the finish line is right now, you'd have to say Australia screwed the pooch. If the finish line is in three years or five years, like I heard Andrew Sullivan on his podcast saying uh, that he thinks that, uh, you know, from a five-year perspective, maybe everyone will basically be awash with coronavirus, regardless Mm. of what strategy you did. It's sort of a bit like what you were saying, Matt, that like there's a certain hubris in our belief that we can control things and ultimately a virus will do what a virus will do and we can flounder around trying to <laughs> trying to protect ourselves from it but ultimately it's going to get you one way or another and i have some sympathy towards that sort of epistemic humility but by the same token when i talk to epidemiologists here in australia which i do quite a lot they say look on the basic yardsticks of human life and economic outcomes it is almost inconceivable that it won't end up proving to have been the right decision for australia to have superior health outcomes and, as a consequence, superior economic outcomes for those crucial first 12 months when we didn't know what the fuck was going on and we didn't really know how to treat it. You know, yes, we're all going to get caught by the virus someday and it's going to be really, really hard for jurisdictions that have had a lot of success in keeping the virus out completely to transition into living with the virus and accepting its costs. And that is going to be a necessary thing to do. And I think it's totally legitimate for outsiders and insiders to worry about a creeping threat of soft authoritarianism as a way of placating a public that doesn't want to be exposed to a pathogen. But all of that being said, I would certainly rather go through the getting hit by coronavirus process 18 months like now, <laughs> when we have a vaccine and we know how to treat it, than in March of 2020, as so much of the world had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be clear, I, I'm not a, a, a lie back and take it necessarily. 
but clear up bottlenecks at the uh, FDA or whatever the relevant authority in whatever country is yeah. to approve for devices, for drugs, things totally. like that. Get I mean, testing, we still we still know. use PCR tests here that take a day or two to turn around. We don't have rapid antigen testing yet. That just got approved this week because wow. the federal government. Yeah, I mean, it was approved, but it wasn't subsidized by the public health system. So huh. the states, when the, if the sta- if the state government, if the state health department uh, commissions a PCR test and has to send it to a pathology lab, then the federal government, Medicare, which all Australians have, it's not just for old people, mm-hmm. but you know, Medicare for all will will pay them about a hundred dollars for the PCR test. But a rapid antigen test only costs 10 or $15. But because the federal government doesn't pay the state for it, the state doesn't want to foot the bill for it. So huh. we don't have those until just now. They've just this week decided that they're going to start paying for them. And as always, like corporations are involved here, the big pathology companies that make a profit out of processing the PCR tests have been lobbying the government not to approve funding for rapid antigen tests because they wow. like getting $100 for every PCR test. Yeah. So there's well, all that bullshit. You're completely right, Matt. I mean, yeah, well, there should be a lot more, you know, a lot more more stuff. And the fact that we haven't used this as an excuse to dramatically increase funding for state-run hospitals is the other thing. Why are we only looking at, you know, if if what you want to do is flatten the curve and prevent hospitals from getting overwhelmed, why are we only looking at the demand for hospital beds and not the supply of hospital beds? We've had 18 months. We could have doubled the number of IC, the amount of ICU in New South Wales, and we haven't. Yeah, I think the incentives all get all perquacky on that. And that's also very much true here. We allow hospitals to decide that they don't want a competitor within a certain radius of them. So they're not going to approve the competitor being built to have more capacity. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. Uh, quick question about, uh, your, uh, allergy, your, your pirate allergy to, uh, uh libertarian ideals or just, uh, philosophical ideals is this. Are you not worried? Um, since you actually flow a little bit in the direction of some philosophical ideals, we know this very well. Um, you have a government who says you have to sh- to go to the <laughs> the goddamn Marriott for two weeks when you come in, even though you're totally vac- vaccinated. You have a, a a government that's you got QR codes, which you seem to like. I'd be a little bit more um, allergic to, but um, does no slippery slope argument troubles you with this pretty strong? government exertion i mean if you if you have to apply for an exemption to leave your fucking island isn't that troubling to you on some level well that's less troubling than some of the it's hard it's hard to answer it also depends on the audience that i'm talking to i mean i was just on australian tv two days ago uh you're screaming from the rooftops about how concerned we should be and about the importance of not vindicating america's critics you know and making sure that we do you mean australia's uh, land of the dismount oh it means america yes critics. our american critics of australia yes. yeah 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 uh, fuck uh, american uh, critics <laughs> yourself i'm talking about george yeah, yeah, yes no so so yes i uh, well put it this way i'm not worried at all about the ban on leaving the country i mean mm-hmm. there is absolutely zero really? chance that that extent that extends beyond uh when it is I was going to say, but I was going to put a date now. on it, but then I could be wrong. It exists now. I would yeah. go. Nuts. I'm furious about it now, but I'm not. <laughs> but, that, but I thought you were. I thought you were. I thought you were saying, "Am I worried about it becoming no. a permanent state of affairs?" No, so, I don't. I don't think anyone is concerned. Like there are some some ridiculous people who are hysterics who are saying that civil liberties are over in Australia. That Australia is no, dead. No, but Matt and just said, reigns. "Am I worried about a slippery but, slope argument?" Which is different from being frustrated about the exemption to. But leave I think the he's country. asking about it in the abstract, not that there's any possibility that this. Will will become permanent, but perhaps that the cultural tone that is set 
by instituting these policies and in any way, shape or form normalizing them may in fact have some consequence for civil liberties more broadly, especially if it's happening in combination with a bunch of other stuff. You've just wielded a tool. You've, it's a great demonstration project right. that the government can do X. It can, by definition. Does that worry you? And is it in the moment, physically, uh, psychologically, emotionally, ideologically, so, uncomfortable? Well, the whole lockdown thing in most states is uh, only authorized under a state of emergency, which mm-hmm. has a time limit on it and then gets renewed Uh you know, for whatever it's worth, both parties are committed, have stated openly that the state of emergency will be removed when there's right. no longer a state of emergency. Now, that's of an course, important, you could drive important a, context. Yes. <laughs> you, could, you could drive a truck through one man's definition of a state of emergency and another man's definition of what justifies <laughs> a state of emergency. And history is littered with uh, regimes that have called states of emergency that have, have gone on, you know, for decades, mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. beyond their time. Uh, I'm not worried about that being abused i'm not worried about the border restrictions uh being uh, becoming a permanent state of affairs i am infuriated with them at the moment i think it's insane and cruel to have not provided any systematic way for australians to be able to to i mean more than leave the country which frankly if you know what you're doing, I, I'm told that you sort of can. I know lots of people who have left the country on business trips and so on. You just have to apply in the right way. I mean, that that rule was basically just so that you can't, people can't go on a one week vacation to Hawaii and then come back and take up a, a space in in a quarantine hotel that could have been used by someone who wanted to repatriate themselves to Australia permanently. But so the outbound thing is uh, is an annoyance and a frustration. The inbound quarantine system is something I worry about. Uh, because it's state run. So I'm not worried about it here in New South Wales. I think it'll be abolished. And well, the premier has been quite clear that it'll be abolished when we hit 80% vaccination. Uh, and that is due to happen in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- I think by the end of the year, we won't, we'll have self-isolation at home the way that you do in the States at the moment, where, where it's a, a, some kind of a trust system, perhaps augmented by digital apps, which is another worry that a libertarian would have. Uh, yes. You know, Conor Friedersdorf, his most egregious uh, piece of misinformation in his article, which I <laughs> asked him to, uh, to update, and he did update it to his credit, was about this trial in South Australia of an app that is intended to replace hotel quarantine for people who are returning to the state from infectious areas. And instead of staying in hotel quarantine, you can opt to have an app on your phone where the police can send you a message or may not be the police, whoever the quarantine enforcement agency is can send you a message. And within 15 minutes, you have to use a photo, like, you know, you have to show on your phone using using face recognition technology that you're mm-hmm. actually in the place where you say you are. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, the police will come around and give you a fine for breaching your your self-isolation. Now, Connor, Connor wrote it in such a way that it sounded as if every single citizen was going to have to download this app. And so that got shared widely on social media with like, oh, my God, Australia is becoming a totalitarian state. Now, it may be that we think such an app is noxious or a terrible idea, and I certainly have my reservations about it, but it's a very different thing to invite people to voluntarily choose to download this app instead of putting them in a hotel for two weeks and have that only apply to people who are choosing to come into the state versus requiring everyone in the state to to do it. So 
that's the sort of thing that start that scares me the most, Matt. I guess I, I guess I, 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 I worry about I worry about two things here. One is things like those technologies becoming a background part of life and being used in an overbearing way, and another is how do the states that have remained COVID free uh, actually open up. Like, I don't really see the political, uh, what kind of a political leader is going to say to their people, instead of having brunch in cafes, let's allow a virus to start circulating. And uh, like, they're only going to be popular with people who care more about being able to leave the state freely and not quarantine than they do about having brunch every weekend without fear of getting sick. And I don't think that's a majority of voters. So... I guess that's a long roundabout way of saying I kind of worry at the edges, but I think a lot of the American concerns are dramatically overblown because they're focusing on things that will almost certainly only last for the duration of the state of emergency, like not being able to leave the country. Yeah, yeah. we don't have a lot of states of emergency that are that are temporary. Here is the, is one well, problem that we have. Yeah, I mean, not nine eleven. We're we're just on the on the cusp of the anniversary. There are all sorts of surveillance. And law enforcement regimes that were spun up and invented in the, in the wake of that, which we are still living with 20 odd years later, regardless of their efficacy mm. and that we're still debating, um, and still trying to dismantle in some context. I mean, you talked about those, those weird islands, um, <laughs> that are, that are in this, uh, sort of legal no man's land where you, where Australia is kind of shepherding people who attempt to enter the country illegally. And I mean, we've, we have a weird island like that as well, where, you know, the Bush administration tried to find a place with that was kind of the legal equivalent of outer space to park <laughs> its people, the people that they had been capturing on the battlefield in Afghanistan. Um, and that became a severe problem for us. And it's one that in many respects, we're still kind of wrestling with. And I'll give you one other thing, because I know we, we're going to lose you soon. The, the thing that makes me, I worry about these policy developments and these proclivities in the context of the next state of emergency and the ones that are already developing. And I think about the headline that I saw yesterday about um, medical journals calling for climate change to be regarded as the greatest global threat and suggesting explicitly that governments need to approach climate change in precisely the same way they're approaching COVID, um, appreciating the catastrophic harm that is, you know, impossible to reverse and implementing some of the same kinds of policies and approaching it with the same sort of determination and reckless abandon, which uh, from my, in my estimation, there've been so many profound errors made and we're so far from making determinations about not so much, you know, what works, but like at the moment, it's just like who won the race, you know what I mean? And the fact that there are just hard, cold realities about what works and what doesn't work in some instances and big questions about what works and what doesn't work. And, and I think we just really need to be practical and measured. And always, I think in a free society, you're having these debates at the margin about what's acceptable and what isn't. 
If it's any consolation on climate change, Camille, Australia is one of the worst emitters on, on carbon in the entire world, so there's no risk of us becoming fascists on climate change. We will just continue shitting as much into the atmosphere as we care to. Isn't that just because uh, you're on fire constantly? Yeah, it's because we're always on fire because of oh. the carbon that we're emitting, heating up the atmosphere. Um, that, you know, what you were just saying, Camille, actually made me uh, – about nat- the national security state and, like, the state of emergency since 9-11 – one thing I haven't thought about why I'm moderately sanguine about the impositions on Australian liberty at the moment is that they're so obviously egregious mm-hmm. that they would be the stupidest way to try to smuggle in permanent inhibitions on liberty. Mm. There are all these background ways, in these insidious ways in which human flourishing gets suppressed by the state and the national security establishment accretes more power towards itself. The things that are being introduced in a time, in a moment of, in a pandemic moment where we're trying to flatten the curve and crush an outbreak, it's so obvious to everybody that this sucks. And it's so obvious to everybody that these tools are extraordinary that I just think that the functions of the state are wilier than that. Like, they, mm-hmm. they're going to get rid of these things. It's the other, like, there's a lot of stuff in Australia that is worrying, that is a lot more worrying. So, Matt, the reason I'm having trouble answering your question, like, am I, as a broadly civil libertarian person, worried about this? There's so much more that I worry about. I mean, in Australia, defamation law is such that journalists who broke stories about Australian soldiers in Afghanistan killing innocent civilians were raided by the police, journalists who were investigated for, you mm. know, under national security uh, rules. And this was years after the events had taken place. So, but national security is just invoked as a reason why the government, you know, can hound you. I mean, it's very similar to the sort of stuff that happens in, in the States with Julian Assange and so on. I mean, the Attorney General, the former Attorney General now, he had to resign in a sort of a Me Too moment not mm. long ago. He sued the journalists who alleged, who revealed allegations of a teenage rape against him. And in Australia, you can just sue a journalist. You don't even have to, you, the person doesn't have to prove that the journalist is, is telling an untruth. As a journalist, you can say point A, which is true, point B, which is true, point C, which is true, point D, which is true, point E, which is true. (laughs) And if a reasonable person, if a judge can conclude that a reasonable person would have concluded Z on the basis of A, B, C, D, and E, then the journalist can be sued, successfully sued by the subject of that article. So you don't even have to say an untruth. In Australia, that's how weird defamation law is. I mean, that contravenes the spirit and the letter of the First Amendment more than anything in any democracy does. There's a whole piece in the New York Times by Damien Cave from, uh, I think, two years ago about Australia being one of the most secretive uh, sort of police statey democracies in the West. We have a bunch of stuff going on that just happens behind the scenes, military trials that don't, that you're not even allowed to report on. So, Am I concerned about, like, I mean, and the other final point that I would make, I suppose, about lockdowns and and things like that is a lot of what I hear from the states seems to treat government action as qualitatively different from, like, downsides of government action as much worse than downsides of non-government 
action. That's correct, Josh. Yes, as, as you will agree. <laughs> and here, at least during the period of a, of a raging pandemic, we just don't see it that way. Like lockdowns suck and also being in Florida right now would suck. And I would take a short period of a lockdown interspersed with long periods of total freedom and carefreeness in maskless, uh, you know, hedonism over a slow grinding uh, unfolding of an epidemic. Mm -hmm. it, but I, I think many of my American friends are like, yeah, but the lockdown's caused by government, whereas the epidemic <laughs> is caused by nature. Therefore, that downside is preferable to the other downside. I don't think most Australians think of it that way. They just think the pandemic sucks. And in some places, the pandemic sucks because it's killing lots of people. And here, the pandemic sucks because we're restricted in what we can do. Both uh, suck. Two quick points. Uh, one is that I think just today in Australia, you had a ruling that uh, uh, people on the internet, Facebook or whatever, are, are legally responsible for what is said in their comments sections, which is right. Pub publishers just, on the internet, like a, a news organization that po puts a post on Facebook. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I just it wow, broke, uh, I haven't heard a couple that years. Yet. It's it's it looks terrifying from afar, but again, we're just you know. We're doing that weird thing where we're looking at a faraway country and making judgments about it, Josh. Maybe you've heard of it before. <laughs> uh, this, <laughs> the second thing. I can't imagine anyone ever being unfair towards the United States of America. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the second thing is, and this is checkmate to Tucker Carlson. He wins and you lose. In uh, <laughs> that headline, New South Wales health limits residents of locked down tower block to six beers per day. <gasps> There's no just That's a fucking... That's Australian, mate. <laughs> that is Australian. What's going on? Have you seen that, Josh? I, I think that's some sort of public housing um, situation or at least a housing situation that's somewhat controlled by the government and the people in that yeah. housing development are it's pretty, either COVID it's pretty patients awful. or they're in, in connection with close affiliation with potential COVID patients. Something like that. Yeah. So what, what something, one weird quirk of our lockdowns while we're not all locked down is that there are different rules for people in, in, in Victoria, which as I've said is much more authoritarian on this stuff. They just lock down the whole fucking state and they don't care mm. about it. Um, and, uh, you know, they have to lock down all of Melbourne. They just do that. In New South Wales, they lock down specific local government areas within the city. So you might have like, you know, just Park Slope is lock, is locked down with certain rules, meaning that if it's you're in Park Slope, it's about time. <laughs> if you're in Park Slope, you've got to stay inside your local government area unless you are uh, unless you have an, a good a good reason to to leave. And sometimes Don't go outside, Chris Hayes. Yes, <laughs> I used to live in Park Slope. I love it, but uh, you know it is what it is. Uh, and sometimes a specific apartment block will have an outbreak in it. I'm not quite sure why they do that. Why they don't just like, why are they locking down the apartment block instead of... Why is that the unit of concern? I mean, you'd have to ask the the chief health officer, I suppose. But yes, that is sometimes the perverse re result of the lockdowns, that instead of locking down an entire city or state, as some states do, in Sydney, we'll just lock down like, all right, you, this is your building. You're staying inside for two weeks. I just Enjoy. can't believe anyone can expect uh, an Aussie to survive on six beers a day. <laughs> it's extraordinary, know. isn't it? It really is. <laughs> It's shameful. This Facebook thing looks looks weird. It is interesting that when I Google Facebook Australia and look at the news, the, all of the pieces that come up about it are American 
news sites. Yeah, we care about you now because you're <laughs> so, us. Which makes me – I'm not sure. So this is a court – ruling uh yes. if the wall street journalist to be trusted this isn't a legislative thing this is a <laughs> right court. It's, a, it's a murdoch paper it's a bloody murdoch paper mate it must be must be true uh there are also a lot i should say uh, to everybody have some skepticism about what you see on social media i mean i know that we know that but mm-hmm. a lot of people send me a news report from channel nine about how australia is is going to require uh, social media users to be real people and to prove themselves and that, that that then the police would be able to get a warrant and find it and like come after you for something that you've posted on social media. And people are saying, oh my God, this is just the latest phase in Australia's descent into totalitarianism. That story is from many, many months or years ago. I can't even remember. It was part of a proposal that some advisory panel was putting to the government that never got followed up on. There are images of police beating protesters uh, who were simply protesting for their freedom in lockdowns, which even I posted without checking that it's actually a photo from Toronto from like a couple of years ago, (laughs) police brutality. It's not even an Australian police officer. There's just a lot of stuff at the moment in hysteria. And And people should also remember there's a big incentive for people who are, let's say, alt righty kind of rat bags who don't want countries like Australia to have been perceived to have succeeded. And they spread a lot of misinformation about guns and they spread a lot of misinformation about policies that uh, don't align with a certain strain of American libertarianism. And I would just encourage people to raise an eyebrow and keep, keep on swiping when they see some example of, of, you know, a calamity in Australia or actually do your research and, and try to Google around and find out if it's true and rely on a reputable news site like the Wall Street Journal, which I just did. I'm uh, not going to let that alt-right equals libertarianism stand, but Camille. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I think, <laughs> I think, I think that goes without saying Josh, Josh is, you know, a little sloppy on his way out the door there, but we're, but we're allowed because, because we love and care about him. Um, and, and because we all know that bullshit news knows no, um, ideological boundaries. We've, we've no bounds, dealt baby. with a deluge of bullshit news over the course of the recent years, which has only accelerated. Um, in recent months. And I think that the general admonishment to be thoughtful about the things that you read, it doesn't matter if you read it in a, in a reputable media publication in some respects, like it's appropriate to be thoughtfully skeptical, to be rigorous and to reserve judgment, especially for something that just doesn't demand that you comply fully <laughs> with this mm. reporting well, in your everyday speak, life. It's okay. Speaking of complying, I mean, we haven't even gotten onto vaccines because uh-huh. I'm sure that, that one of the, you know, in, from a libertarian perspective, this will be the next, uh, you know, the next phase of criticism of Australia because there's no doubt that the main path to Australia's return to normality is going to involve a mandate, uh, yeah. Vac- yeah, some, you know, heavy, yeah. You know, heavy inducements, shall we say, mm-hmm. in carrots and sticks towards getting up to a kind of vaccination number that will permit truly low, uh, truly low numbers of COVID casualties. There's no way that Australia is going to tolerate uh, the 53% vaccination rate that the US has. I mean, we're already, I think, snapping, snapping at those heels. But uh, if Western Australia is going to open up uh, and have public support for doing so without having its hospitals be overwhelmed, you're probably going to need to see 85 plus percent vaccination. And to get there, you're probably going to need to 
I mean, like the football code has already said that you're not going to a football game in 2022 unless you're vaccinated. And, you know, there are various state premiers who are talking about not allowing people to eat indoors at restaurants yet until, uh, you know, unless you're vaccinated. So that's going to be the next the next battleground. Uh, and again, it has its own whole set of different trade-offs. But I think Australia will do what it takes to get those vaccination rates up. Yeah, we'll we'll be watching, and I'm sure we'll we'll reconnect to discuss further. Um, yeah, but- and look, I'm not I'm not an apologist for all this. I would I would I want the heat to be on Australia because I want our political leaders to feel that there's that they they can't continue this. I mean, it, it sounds like I'm being defensive about Australia, but in actual a fact, locally in, Australia, <laughs> lo- locally in Australia, I've been I've been shouting from the rooftops for months and months and months, saying, yeah, yeah. when is the conversation really going to change to a serious calculation of accepting deaths? When are we going to stop focusing on daily COVID cases and start talking about the benefits of opening up yes. in, a, in a frank way yeah, yeah. and really get uh, really prepare people for this so if people are listening to this 12 months hence if people are listening to this in the summer of 2022 in the back catalog or you re-release <laughs> a best of and australia still has uh lockdowns uh, you know wide wide scale lockdowns and prohibitions on movement then something has gone horribly horribly wrong and my right. side failed to win right right well it's, it's always different when somebody else is talking about your mama and your family you know, this is, a, this is a problem. This is a problem, and we won't. We I mean, I try to not to be it, reaction. I try not to be knee-jerk, defensive about it. I just try to put a little bit of uh, shade uh, and nuance into what can sometimes seem fairly absolute criticisms coming from abroad. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and again, some of it really has been. Um, but Josh, I know you have to run, um, and I want to allow you to get to your next thing. I'm delighted that we could catch up a little bit here, and hopefully, we can do Absolutely. it in in a more intimate way at some point in the not too distant future when you are permitted to travel again. I am anticipating 80% vaccination in November, and I am going to hold the Premier to her word that she says she wants Australian families reunited for Christmas, which means Mm. I, which I take to mean that quarantine hotels are going to be gone by Christmas. So I am booking my trip to the States uh, for Christmas time. I'll see you for a wintry eggnog. Live show, Josh. Live show, baby. Mm, Live show. Here first. All right. You'll have to have your you COVID bet. passport to get in. So there it is. I've people. got it. I'm all fired up, baby. <laughs> well, Josh, <laughs> it's good to talk to you. I'm, I'm glad to see you in good health. You're looking good. It looks like you've been using your, your Peloton bike or whatever you're doing over there. Keep it up. Um, I, <laughs> I mean, there's only mine too. You can't there are only two things you can do in, in, in lockdown. You either just eat ice cream and watch Netflix or you get fit. <laughs> And the first half of the pandemic, I ate ice cream and watched Netflix. And the second half, I got fit. Me great. too. Me too. No, I lost like 10 right. pounds in the last couple of weeks. So You're yeah. looking great. You're both looking fantastic. Give I my love to Moynihan. Love to all your listeners. I love yes. you guys. Uh, you follow me on Twitter. Listen to Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Sepps. And I'll get, a, I'll get an eggnog in, in December. All right, brother. Thanks, man. Bye. Thanks, Josh. Bye. We, we know of new methods of attack. Trojan Horse, the fifth column.